You're entering Outer Brightness. Hello, Fireflies. Thank you for attending and coming to this new episode of Outer Brightness. And we're thankful to have here a special guest. And uh, if you don't know how to pronounce his name, I hope I don't butcher it, Aaron Shafawalaf. He's our good Christian friend. Um, he's done, he has a history of Christian apologetics, and uh, he's now a seminarian. So practice, he's learning to uh, join the ministry. So we're very grateful to have you on here today, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. We really appreciate it. And uh, we just finished an interview with our, our Latter-day Saint friend, Jackson Washburn, uh, on the nature of God. And so now we're going to kind of continue uh, a similar discussion, but from uh, an Orthodox Christian perspective. And um, Aaron and I had been kind of talking about Christian orthodoxy, uh, divine simplicity, you know, the view of God historically uh, amongst Christianity, historically, and uh, kind of how we're learning and reading certain books and kind of wrestling with it and understanding it. And so. Um, we thought that this uh, this article that uh, Aaron wrote that was published this month at um, MRM, what does that stand for again? I, I'm, I'm blanking. Mormonism Research Ministry. Thank you. Yes. I was like, is it Ministry of Researching Mormonism? <laughs> I can remember how they went. But yeah, thanks for correcting me. So it's the article that Aaron wrote is called Dilemmas of Mormon Exaltation. And um, so before we get into that, uh, Aaron, would you like to introduce yourself, you know, your background, um, things you've done in the past, things you're doing right now? Anything you'd like to share with us before we go into the article? Yeah, just quickly, I, I spent almost 15 years in Utah uh, doing weekly evangelism to Mormons uh, minus winter and uh, was a part of three different church plants there. Uh, so, so blessed. Um, I have a wife and three kids. When COVID hit, I was working at home and I thought I could work from home and, and go to seminary in the evenings. Um, and so I moved to Kansas City. And the idea here is to spend a season of life uh, being ac- more academically trained. And uh, the hope is I could go back to Utah, God willing, and re-enter the the mission field there. I'm I'm a uh, I'm with also Mormonism Research Ministry, which is an evangelical uh, ministry that does training and apologetics and evangelism. Uh, I, I I quite enjoy it. Uh, I love the Mormon people. Um, I love seeing them come to Christ. I love seeing them uh, know the God of the Bible. Uh, every every season of life where I get a little discouraged uh, about how much it's like pounding desert soil, um, I get an email from somebody that says, you know, thank you so much. It's been so helpful. Um, I've left the Mormon church. I, you know, I know Jesus now. I'm, I'm in a local church with other believers. And it's like, wow. So uh, it's just, you know, God's at work. And um, I also just love who God is. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I theorize that, you know, even if ministry involved zero converts, there'd still be a joy and a pleasure in trumpeting the supremacy of who God is. Amen. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Love that. Uh, I think I first came across your name uh, when I was kind of a doubting Latter-day Saint or questioning Latter-day Saint around 2014, 2015. 
And I really started researching debates. And, you know, most of the debates that are held in Utah are on your, on your YouTube channel. Uh, the ones, you know, that are either, you know, that, uh, from James White in particular, he has, I think there are several debates he posted there. So would you like to kind of introduce people to your, your YouTube channel if they're curious to, to see your videos there? Yeah. In 2006, I started posting, you could go to youtube.com forward slash Jesus, not Joseph. I started posting in 2006, uh, stories of those who had left the LDS church and had become Bible believing Christians. And, uh, we'd have training sessions in Manti. So a lot of the videos, it was me coming down to Manti, Utah, and there would be a group of Christians there training in the mornings and in the evenings, late nights doing evangelism on the street. It's a longer story. It's a really cool story. But uh, we would have people there that would gather and train each other. And I just was like, man, I should record these training sessions. And I started putting those training sessions up and then getting more interviews of people who had their story to tell. And um, I think one of the first videos I did was with Bill McKeever explaining the untold story of the death of Joseph Smith, which just blew up. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not a YouTuber in the sense of, you know, really paying a lot of attention to how to do marketing and uh, clickbait titles and great intros. Um, I usually just record an event like that and I put it up and I forget about it. Um, and that's it. And I just, you know, in the next season of life, I'll, I'll add more stuff and maybe do a live stream every so often. But it, it it's been neat though, because it's like dropping a seed and then you, it's like in the gospel of Mark where, the, the farmer wakes up one day and he's like, where did all, all these crops come from? It's like, oh, I guess it was, it was the seed I planted earlier. And it, it's uh, YouTube videos have a lot of reach. Uh, there's people that are lurking and watching and uh, questioning. And yeah. Yeah, that's yep. great. It sounds like you're, you were uh, Apology Radio before Apology Radio. They copped your style in terms of like, you know, the, the, the street evangelism and things like that and training. Yeah, they're, they're, I love those guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're great. And I, I think uh, like Matthew, I came across your stuff probably right around the time I was leaving the LDS church. Um, I think some of your videos down there in Manti were some of the first that I kind of started watching on YouTube uh, to get my feet wet. Like, okay, what, what, what do these Christians actually say? You know, cause when I, as a teenager went to the Manti pageant, we avoided you all like the plague because, you know, that was kind of the, the direction we were given, but um, yeah, thankful for your ministry and thankful that you're on with us tonight. So looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Uh, what, um, which seminary are you at in Kansas city? Midwestern Baptist okay. theological seminary. Awesome. And uh, just out of curiosity, I know that you've done some live streams where you've kind of uh, there was one live stream you did that I attended where you were pre- preparing for an exam, I think like a history of Baptist <laughs> exam. And that was actually really fun uh, to see you kind of like go through your notes and everything. So uh, do you have like a favorite subject or topic that you, you know, that you kind of got into at seminary so far? Oh, definitely Greek. I've, I've been developing software for helping people learn Greek, uh, some parsing exercises and automatically generated tools for uh, mixing and matching. Um, and then I'm taking intermediate Greek this semester. So just, this is maybe a, a geek point, but um, beyond parsing, we're doing syntactical classifications now. And so uh, I'm, I'm brainstorming on how to help uh, use software to help people um, with varying degrees of difficulty, sort of pedagogy and gentleness, uh, just uh, figure out how to step through sections of scripture that are easier than others in Greek and, you know, uh, drill and kill practice. I mean, you, you read like mounts, you read like you know, Kostenberger and it's like, man, this is a lot to take in. Um, but if I could, if I could learn a paradigm by, uh, practicing it like a thousand times or something ridiculous like that, just, you know, every time I'm like walking somewhere in my phone, drag and drop, and it starts to really sink in. It's really helpful. 
so yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm a software guy. So Greek has been uh, great also because it's, make, you know, blending the two worlds, but there's also like theology one. Um, I've tried to get a lot of my theology one reading done over the summer before it starts this fall. And we'll be diving into Aquinas and Anselm. And uh, of course the divine simplicity rabbit hole went down that. Wow. Loved it. Um, and I got learning more about uh, Christian history. You know, that that's been a joy. So yeah, awesome. I, I love what you've been doing with the the Greek software uh, and seeing, you know, the posts you've made about that on Facebook. I, I uh, did my MDiv while working full-time. I've, I've got a you know, 20 plus year career in the health insurance industry. So I know the challenge of, of trying to work full time and, and also, uh, you know, continue theological studies. And um, I've been meaning to kind of revisit Greek. So I'm kind of excited to try to make use of some of the stuff you've come up with, because it looks uh, very intuitive. And, and, you know, I love some of the software for memorizing scripture that I use on my phone. So I look forward to using this, you know, seeing where you go with the, the Greek study stuff. Yeah, I think that'd be a great tool for, you know, for ministers, like you said, to get back into Greek, maybe if they haven't done it for a long time. And for lay people like me, like I've, I started to dive into mounds and stuff and, and get the very basics, but I just, you know, run out of time and, you know, it's hard to really dive deep into it when you're not actually in a seminary program, having someone instruct you. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see those tools also in the future. So yeah, really, really appreciate everything you do. And um, so let's get to get into the article. So from what I understand, the basic kind of goal of the article is to just talk about, well, as the title says, dilemmas in Mormon exaltation. So it's kind of describing uh, different different uh, issues that I think Mormons will have to wrestle with in terms of their view of eternal progression and how man can become God. Um, how can we, we can become gods and how we are the same uh, ontologically in terms of who we are, in terms of being, we're of the same being as God. We're just at different levels of progression. So uh, would you agree with that? Or would you uh, have more comments just generally about the article? Yeah, just for somebody who's new to this, uh, Mormonism has this Lorenzo Snow couplet, which says, as man is, God once was, as God is, man may be. And the general, the dominant approach to that is to say that God's past is a pattern for our future, that, that, that there's something uh, patterned in the, the generations of the gods. There's a repeated, repeatable cycle. And even the purpose of life is to continue repeating this uh, cycle and help others participate in the system. Uh, but when people start thinking through this, it, it, you know, it, it bothers the conscience. And so people come up against brick walls and contradictions because, well, I mean, uh, part of the problem, I think this is a good problem is that a lot of Latter-day Saints, I think are in denial about how much classic theism they're wanting to hold onto still. They, they're kind of, they kind of want to hold on to uh, some vestiges of, you know, historic Christian approaches to God, the, the omnis, you know, uh, they, they want the language, they, they want uh, the big, the bigness of God. And so they'll, they'll kind of reach for that language and reach for the ideas initially, and then it gets deconstructed by their own theology. So uh, part of it's that part of it's that Mormonism has, and, and this is so huge for people to understand Mormonism historically has very different uh, models for approaching exaltation and the cosmos and sort of a system of, of gods and exaltation. Uh, there's very different approaches to eternal progression, to uh, what, what an intelligence is, uh, what a spirit body is and how those come about. And I don't think Latter-day Saints even realize that, you know, often they have a view and uh, it's in contradiction to the views of other prophets and apostles within their own church or other, you know, members. And so part of the, the dilemmas and contradictions that come about are owing to the fact that sometimes people are kind of picking from one view or another, and they're not really consistently 
picking a view. And then there's even contradictions within the views. So uh, this is my attempt at really getting pe people to think theologically. I mean, that's this isn't just like what to think, it's how to think. Should we even pursue these uh, lines? Uh, should we just throw our hands up in there and say, oh, that's deep, that's difficult, uh, that doesn't matter, it's not relevant to my salvation? Or should, should we, as a matter of worshipful contemplation, and devotion, think about the greatness of God and really push that as, as far as we, we can, according to God's revelation and according to the, the minds that he's given us. Um, should we love God with all of our mind by thinking these things out reasonably? Um, I, I say yes. And, uh, and, and my hope is that people would see how you know ridiculous it is to choose anything other than uh, the great, most high, uh, self-existent, simple, most high, say that again, most high God. Yeah, that's Amen. great. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, I, I liked a lot of what you said there. And a lot of those were kind of questions I already had in my mind. You know, there's going to be a lot of people that say, well, this is just theological navel gazing. You know, what does it really matter? You know, if you take one view or another, and also why does it, how does that really affect our worship? And that's kind of something that Paul brought up in our conversation with Jackson Washburn before. And so you kind of already addressed that, that, that it does have effects. It does affect you know, our salvation, you know, our relationship with God, uh, not just knowing God, but salvifically, you know, are we actually in Christ if we embrace different views of God that are just antithetical to the teachings of scripture? And when you have beliefs that are antithetical to these teachings, then that affects your worship, you know, it affects how you envision God, how we worship God, how we relate to God. Uh, so is there anything you'd like to, to um, talk about that before we go into the specific uh, dilemmas? Well, I mean, I'll just say this, at lunch today, after church with my three kids, um, we're memorizing Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. And uh, I, I did a little exposition of the first stanza to my kids and explained why the hymn writer said rock and of ages and cleft for me. And we talked about how God as rock is referring to his stable, consistent, unchangeable, completely independent being. He doesn't have mood swings. Um, he's not going to digress. Uh, he's not going to regress. He's not going to improve. Um, he's completely reliable, um, as the Old Testament says. You know, it's because he's he he because he is who he is in the eternal past. We can we can depend on him going forward in the future. And he's not just the rock; he's the rock of ages. He's over time. He's he's uh, responsible for time. Uh, there's no there's no prior season of where he wasn't the rock. Uh, there's no you know. Uh, theoretical, you know, like out there uh, season where he was malleable and improving in his morality and yet not yet obtaining perfection. Um, and so for the hymn writer to say rock of ages cleft, cleaved or separated or pierced, uh, you know, crucified for me, rock of ages, it's really, it's bringing together this beauty of the most high omnipotent, invisible God becoming a little tiny suffering finite baby. <laughs> and then, and then he dies on it. He dies. The God of life, the God that has life in himself, uh, assumes humanity and then dies. And, and there's something beautiful. There's no, there's no, there's no Marvel superhero story, uh, that even comes close to the beauty and the, the inimitable beauty of redemptive history and what God has chosen to do to reveal himself. So if you were, if you were to decon, if you were to tell me that God, well, that God actually used to be not yet God and that he became who he is, um, it would just destroy the hymn for me. I would, I would have to sing it out of 
uh, a poor conscience, a broken conscience. I would have to, I would have to just rip out the meaning of the words and I would, and it, it, what it would do is it would destroy Christian worship. It would gut, it would just absolutely devastate the hearts of Christians. If, if, if for some reason we found out that God was not truly the rock of ages. So it, it affects my worship. Absolutely. It affects the music and the, the emotions and the prayer and the devotion and, and for Latter-day Saints to think, well, this is just, you know, it's not relevant to my salvation. It's like, this is my relevant, this is relevant to my life. This is relevant to my existence. Uh, this is the, why I'm here is to know this great God. Anyway, I'm sermonizing, but no, that's beautiful. I, I really appreciate that. I, I don't even think I had uh, actually thought about those words that deeply, but uh, yeah, that's great. Uh, it's as a Latter-day Saint, we thought it was an advantage, or at least I did. I thought it was an advantage that we worshiped a God that was very similar to us. And then starting to question that and doubt and leave the LDS church and find out that God is not like us in almost every way imaginable. Uh, it's kind of scary, but at the same time, it, it opens your mind. It's like I had such a small, you know, like laser focused view of who God is. And you realize God is so expansive and he's not changing and he is reliable and he's always going to be the same God. And it makes me really grateful that we are not like God because humans are broken. Humans, uh, you know, we're just not reliable. Like you said, we change emotions all the time, but God doesn't. And that's why we have such a wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just, it's just amazing to, to, to talk about and think about that. So I'm really grateful that you're on to, to deep dive more deeply into these dilemmas as to why we think Latter-day Saints should really think about this and think about why having a changeable God or that we can become gods just as he is, why that can be, why that will affect uh, your worship, your, your understanding, your, your faith, and why ultimately, why we can't really open the hand of fellowship to our Latter-day Saint friends uh, as fellow brothers in Christ. And so we see these things as, as something that divides us in terms of the faith. They're deal breakers. Right. Exactly. So uh, let's let's go to the uh, the first section in your article. Um, so if you'd like, we could just uh, read each one out and then talk about it. Um, so would you like to read that for us, Aaron? Uh, would you like me to verbalize it? Oh yeah, sure. That's Does fine. that work? Yeah. And if, works. if I if I don't cover it, then please maybe interject. Uh, the first one concerns subordination and dependence, uh, which I would actually split out now to two different dilemmas, just for clarity. But uh, this is, is simply that if we, in our exaltation as gods in the Mormon system, remain uh, subordinate. And by subordinate, I mean positioning ourselves as a relational inferior to a superior. If we do that, uh, then it stands to reason, uh, given the Lorenzo Snow couplet coupling of the past and future, that Heavenly Father is still relationally subordinating himself as a relational inferior to uh, Heavenly Grandfather. And I know from some Latter-day Saints, I just can't believe he just said heaven, the grandfather. <laughs> like, <don't, laughs> and, uh, well, I, 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 I uh, don't like using euphemisms and I don't like, I, I like to be as crisp and clear as I can. But so the, the, the dilemma here is this, I think Latter-day Saints as a carryover from historic Christian doctrine and sort of like the echoes of a Christian conscience that have largely since been abandoned, but there's still echoes there. Um, there, there, we know in our conscience that, uh, God, uh, doesn't like, he doesn't bend the knee to heavenly father. He doesn't bend the knee to a higher God than himself. And we know that, uh, if we become gods, like, I mean, that's blasphemous. That, that's a terrible premise to operate off of. But, um, even if we did, you know, in the, in the LDS thinking, you know, a lot of them think, well, surely we would still bend the knee to our heavenly father. We, w- we wouldn't like graduate from bending the knee to heavenly father. We wouldn't stop 
submitting and subordinating ourselves as relational inferiors, um, we would still bend the knee. Um, so the problem here is it's when Latter-day Saints try to correct this and they say, okay, well, maybe we can fix this. Um, maybe, maybe Heavenly Father doesn't bend the knee to Heavenly Grandfather. Well, in, in that case, you have to be consistent, be symmetric and say, well, well, when we become gods, uh, we will graduate from bending the knee from our Heavenly Father. Uh, in other words, if, we, if, we're, if Heavenly Father is not subordinate to his, for our Heavenly Grandfather, then we're not going to be subordinate to him when we become gods. So another Latter-day Saint solution is, is to say, well, um, well, I mean, that's solution, but it's kind of insistence is to say, well, we'll always be, you know, subordinate to Heavenly Father. And then you have to say, Heavenly Father is always subordinate to Heavenly Grandfather. Anyway, I'm probably repeating myself, but it, it, it's, you can repeat, you can sort of copy that dilemma uh, with dependence. So uh, I think we know that everything we have is from God and we are dependent on him. And it's not as though I grow independent of God. Um, it's not as though I become like a source of goodness that's not downstream from God. It's all owing to God. So I'm, I'm really in heaven. I'm growing more aware of my dependence on God. And I think a lot of even Latter-day Saints want to still affirm that, yeah, we will always be dependent on God. Well, then you have to extrapolate that backward in the LDS system to heavenly, heavenly Father is dependent on Heavenly Grandfather. And then you have this similar problem when they try to fix one side or the other. Any th- thoughts or comments on that? Yeah, yeah, good. I I, I love the way that you um, kind of couch this article in terms of, uh, you know, dilemmas for Mormon theology, but then how that... In how there's interplay there with with um, kind of latent Christian conscience within the Latter-day Saint mind. I love that. Um, you know, kind of as I think about this first section of subordination, you know, I think a lot of times the, the reason that Latter-day Saints will kind of go to that subordination place to try to explain their theology um, is because there's this, this difference, right, between Latter-day Saint theology and, and, and kind of a, a plurality of gods. And the classic Christian view that uh, there is one eternally existent, eternally self-existent supreme being, right? Whom we call God. And <clears throat> so Latter-day Saints try to kind of get out of that dilemma by, by of, of, of recognizing, I guess, in their conscience that, well, if we say there's plural, plurality of gods, then, then why don't we worship these other gods, right? And so that's why they go to the subordination place. I think it's interesting. Um, so what... Um, do you, do you think that's true? Do you think that, do you think that's why they go there in their minds, Aaron? The latent Christian conscience? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And, 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 and an attempt to kind of get out from under the dilemma of, of, uh, well, we, we, we have a plurality of gods, but we only worship one God. So that we, we can remain monotheistic if we say, if we go to the subordination place, right? Yeah. It's kind of like a sh- shorthand fix maybe, but mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So these three dilemmas I've written out on this article, um, it's sort of a preview. <laughs> I've written out, I think, 26 of them. Um, and it's just a matter of, can I synthesize, categorize, and then flesh them out? Um, but yeah, there's other dilemmas that sort of po- start popping up really quickly when you start you know, saying things like, well, God's not worthy of worship because of what he's like. He's, he's worthy of worship because he's our particular deity. The the idea goes, well, and I'll use my sort of uh, crystal clear language here. He's our cosmic regional patriarch. He's our local, he's our local deity. He's our cosmic local regional deity for his particular domain and his particular generation of the gods. Um, 
And so, you know, I, I asked a lot of Latter-day Saints, if you found out that heavenly grandfather had more glory, more knowledge, more power, would you worship heavenly grandfather instead of worshiping heavenly father? And the answer almost always is no, because heavenly father is my God. Um, and so the implication of that is, is, I, is they're not worshiping God because he is supremely omnipotent and supremely uh, omniscient. Christians worship God because he is supremely perfect, uh, most high perfect. And the Latter-day Saint you know, is at least the dominant system as it, it's fleshed out. You can never really stereotype an individual Latter-day Saint. Sometimes you find out that they don't agree with the Latter-day Saint traditions, but um Sort of the, the, the dominant system is is that we're not really worshiping God because He is the Most High. He's not, not He's not He's not the source of everything good, true, and beautiful for all. He's just the sort of the immediate conduit of what's good and true and beautiful for me. Um, he's downstream from other deities, and I'm quite thankful that He was sort of the mediating conduit of of what's good in the in the larger cosmos for, on my behalf. Um, but yeah, that that though just provokes so many other problems that we can talk about. But yeah, I. I Again, um, I'll mention one other thing that uh, I should help. This will be helpful for a lot of Latter-day Saints, hopefully. Um, there's different models of exaltation among Mormon thinkers. Uh, one you might say is the Brighamite view. Uh, and it's Brigham's notion that all the gods are always progressing in all of their attributes. And the only alternative is, is to progression is, is digression. And so he didn't think that the gods were stagnant in any of their attributes, uh, especially knowledge and power. Whereas uh, other folks like Orson Pratt, as I understand it, and at least, you know, folks that came following Young, others who had formulated, like Bruce McConkie would be a good sort of modern example. He thought it was heresy to think that God himself was progressing in knowledge. So this other view of progression, the gods, when they are exalted, they max out in their omnis, in their knowledge and power, and they no longer progress in their, you might call them internal attributes but they continue to progress in their external glory, their, their eternal increase. And I, I don't mean this merely to be cheeky, but it's just a really helpful analogy in that model. The glory of the gods is sort of like an MLM where you, it's a pyramid scheme or MLM where you get glory out of your children gaining glory and so forth. And so um, it's not really speaking to, you know, the infinite internal glory you have. It's really sort of an additive glory. Um, it's not reflecting of something. It's not reflective of something infinite. It's additive. Uh, so you have these two models of progression where God is actually progressing in himself or God is progressing no longer in himself, but is progressing um, outside of himself. Sort of what his domains are. Uh, he, he has more clout among the gods, if you will. <laughs> He's got more uh, MLM representation of, of the generations of the gods. Anyway, so think about those different models you know, when you're thinking about these dilemmas. Yeah, that's that, that's exactly what I was thinking of when I have traditionally heard that view that God is growing in more dominion and scope and power. And as all more of his children become exalted, you know, uh, Moses, the Latter-day Saints have a book of scripture called uh, the book of Moses. And one of the most famous passages is uh, chapter one, verse 39, where he says, for behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass immortality and eternal life of man. So when more Latter-day Saints are exalted or, or, you know, people in other planets and other universes are exalted. The God that brought them to that exaltation grows in glory. That's kind of how I saw it. And I think a lot of LDS see it rather than God actually changing himself. Um, I've, I've actually known very rare circumstances of LDS that believe that there is no God above God, the father. So God, the father is the ultimate God. And so that kind of solves that issue, but that kind of 
and they admit that that's not the historic LDS understanding. So like you said, some LDS just um, diverge from their tradition entirely to kind of solve that problem. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that LDS really need to, to kind of understand and think about. And um, in, our, in our conversation with Jackson, sorry to go back to it because you just had it, but I think it's very relevant. He, he said that, you know, if you look in terms of timeline, the LDS prophet right now is approximately or almost exactly half the age of the church itself. Uh, so the church really has not been around that long. And he says in terms of timeline, they haven't even reached, you know, the beginning of their church to uh, what we would say from the beginning of the Christian church to the Council of Nicaea. And so he's saying that, you know, that it's not uh, correct for non-LDS to ask LDS these types of questions because even they haven't quite figured it all out yet. And but but to me, it's a much different situation because well, we have the internet. Information passes so much more rapidly now. Uh, they claim to still have prophets that can just ask God questions and He'll give them the answers, kind of a thing. You know, he, he they just still have conduits of revelation that can just answer these questions immediately. Whereas like Christians historically have had to wrestle with Scripture and understanding it, you know, totally in, in the tradition of the faith. So it's, I don't know, I, I didn't really find that a convincing argument, but I didn't have time to really push him on that or talk about that, unfortunately. So Yeah, and it's really interesting for Latter-day Saints to say they've only had, say, I forget what it is now, 180, 170-something years. Um, because what that implies is that they don't have 2,000 years. So they're, they're breaking continuity. Whereas for Christians, we're acknowledging that God has had his pillar and buttress of the truth on the earth for 2,000 years. So God has been equipping by the Holy Spirit, his people for 2000 years through the development of historical theology and combating heresies and revisiting God's word and reformation. Um, he had, the Holy Spirit has been very active in the church for 2000 years. So for Christians, uh, we don't want to become historically ignorant of the historical de- development. It's not, uh, it's not a, a faith breaker for us to learn that it took time for Christians to uh, kind of sort things out and, and, and develop ideas and crystallize and debate, you know, like that, things like that. Um, but you know, one of the things that you really don't see, uh, really promulgated within Mormonism is a really healthy historical theology by this, I I back up a bit for Christians. There's three different, you could say three different ways we want to do theology. We want to put them all together. One is we want to do exegesis. We want to look at the text and we want to know what the authors meant. And, uh, you know, you, there's a zoom out and zoom in aspect of that, where you would want to know what the immediate text is saying in context. And then we want to zoom out and we want to see what God as the common author of all scripture uh, is doing as a singular, you know, author, sort of the threads or the themes or, you know, things that God has been up to through all the 66 books. Uh, so, we're, you know, it's biblical theology exposition, exegesis, hermeneutics. So we want it to be textual. We want to be tethered to the text. The second category you might call uh, historical theology. Uh, We want to trace the development of thought and we don't want to pretend like uh, uh, we aren't downstream from that or or that we're not building on the, standing on the shoulders of others or building on the work of others. Instead, we want to, to utilize the thinking of other Christians who are thinking about scripture and think clearly about the categories and the debates. And in doing so, that'll help us more clearly think about scripture because Christians have been thinking very deeply about scripture for 2000 years. And if I try to go rogue or lone, lone ranger on that, and I just become arrogant and I, 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 I end up like recreating heresies or like reinventing the wheel, or I end up not thinking as clearly, 
The third category is systematics is really, you're really connecting the dots. And if you're just taking it, you're zooming out and you're looking at the big ideas and you're, you're, you're thinking harmoniously and systematically about the whole. Uh, so Mormonism has uh, a text <laughs> and uh, uh, it's very disjointed, um, but it's, that's another conversation. Um, and they have, a, they have a systematic theology. They, they've often said, well, we're, we're proud not to have a systematic theology. We don't have creeds. Well, you more or less have, you know, something like gospel principles reflecting an overall general system. It's a generally coherent system. You could poke holes in it, um, but at, you know, as a as a superficial hole, you could say there's a there's a generally coherent idea of what the the world of what reality is like. It breaks down when you press it out to the implications, but uh, it's a generally coherent worldview. Um, it, Mormons are taught a system. They're taught a way of thinking about things. The problem, though, is that when Mormons study their theology, they're really not given exposure to the historical development of how the thinking expanded and developed within their own tribes. Uh, so uh, I, I would implore my Latter-day Saint neighbors to read something like, This is My Doctrine, The Development of Mormon Theology by Charles Harrell. Uh, he's a, he was a professor at BYU. Um, there have been other efforts at something along these lines, like the Terrell Givens, but more it's more or less devastating for Mormons to do historical theology because they start realizing that their prophets and apostles ended up taking positions that denounced as heresy, the positions of prior apostles and prophets. And you start learning about the streams of thought within Mormonism, say about exaltation and the cosmos. And you start realizing there's camps. There's literally like categories of different ways of thinking within this, within the tradition of Mormonism. And you, and, and the reason, one reason why this is devastating is that there's this common sense of y'all Protestants out there, y'all are crazy because you have diversity of thought on theology and you have different camps, you have Arminianism and Calvinism, and you have different, you know, variations of theology, you have different systematic theologies, you have different, you know, denominations we don't have that problem. <laughs> Mormonism is like, yeah, we've got things figured out. We have a standard curriculum. We've got correlation. We've got prophets and apostles to, you know, to prevent us from having the kind of problem that Protestants have when really it's just, it's just, it's there, uh, but it's not really known. And so some, some of what I'm doing here is I'm, I'm, I'm kind of exposing Latter-day Saints to a variety of positions they have within their own religious camp. Yeah, that's great. Uh, thank you so much for that, Aaron. Yeah. It's, um, that was something that I really struggled with is the historical development of LDS theology and uh, why it just seems like it seems you could take one prophet at any moment in time compared to what another prophet says. And, you know, it's hard to find a lot of agreement on, on these particular issues. And it seems like what you're saying, like with correlated material, I think that's kind of what their solution was. It's like, okay, all of these disagreements are kind of on these like nitpicky, you know, uh, quote unquote, min minor, you know, issues. So we'll just kind of flatten it out. And just talk about the main issues. Okay, Jesus is the son of God. You know, we're not going to really talk about what that means in super a lot of depth. We'll just leave it at that, you know. But anytime you go into any kind of depth on these issues, um, it forces you to ask these kind of questions, to go deeper, to understand what does it actually mean to be God? What does it actually mean to be man? And um, I think and that's the issue. There's a common objection that whatever we bring up is an official doctrine. Right. And the solution that's proposed is for us to minimize our our articulation of LDS doctrine to that, which is the recently emphasized subset of the standard works expressed in general conference. So it's not even just the standard works. It's, I mean, there's just different, 
there's no official doctrine on what constitutes official doctrine. Um, there's no binding and official position on what constitutes a binding and official position. Um, so there's like minimalists and maximalist approaches to LDS theology. The most, minim- I mean, one minim- minimalist version is um, you're only allowed to critique the claims of Mormonism that you can find attested in its standard works and repeated uh, in general conference recently, because not everything that's canonical is official doctrine. Not everything in general conference is official doctrine. Not everything in, in a canon and general conference is official doctrine. It's just, it's kind of messy depending on who you talk to. So my, my proposed counter solution is this. I'm not trying to misrepresent the Latter-day Saint people as individuals. I would rather give a holistic view of the Latter-day Saint faith by making note of what their canon originally said, because they diverted, they've diverged from it, and making note of the historical developments, the, 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 like how Latter-day Saints have thought about this particular issue throughout the, you know, the years. And then uh, sort of what is the sort of the generally coherent gospel principles idea today? And then what are sort of the cultural streams of thought you can find if you look hard enough within the Mormon people? So if I put that all together and I represent it, like, is that a better, can I do that? Like, is that a target that I won't be, you know, that's not official. Well, you know, just, just because it's not official doesn't mean Mormons aren't teaching it to their kids. Yeah. It's, it's why I wrote an article that's on uh, Fred Anson's website. That's called the chameleon gospel. Uh, and it's like, you know, every Latter-day Saint you talk to, they've got their own view of how things work, who God is, what the, what salvation is. And that's why it's so difficult for us to witness to them, because even if you quote, you know, official sources, they'll be like, well, that's not how I see it, or that's not official, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very relevant to this discussion because like I said, um, you know, for this first dilemma you brought up subordination, uh, you know, is God, the father subordinate to his father, God, some will just, you know, solve it by just saying, well, I don't believe the King fall discourse is authoritative. Uh, or they just reinterpret it. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to divert so much from the dilemmas. Maybe we should no, no, no. down on them. No, no, no. It's good. It's good. I think it's totally relevant. Um, Paul, did you have any comments about this dilemma? Um, maybe not about the dilemma, but just kind of a, a cap on the conversation that was just flowing is, um, you know, Jackson kind of alluded to it tonight. And, and Blake Osler is someone who kind of promotes this idea as well within Mormonism is that that it's a benefit for Mormons that there isn't an official position, as you were saying, Aaron, that that they have this freedom of thought. Uh, in fact, I was reading uh, an, uh, one of Blake Osler's articles in dialogue that he had uh, shared to me this morning, um, and he makes the statement, um, paraphrasing, of course, but but essentially that you know, uh, Mormon thought is 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 mind expanding rather than mind limiting, right? Which he kind of views uh, classic Christian theology as mind limiting because. You can't just, uh, you know, imagine what you want to be true, I suppose. But, um, you know, the, the, the real dilemma is that, that there is truth, right? There, if there's no absolute truth, then there is no absolute reality that we can understand and grasp as, as human beings and as thinking people. So um, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily see that, uh, you know, especially as a former Latter-day Saint, as a, as a benefit that, that there's just no uh, solid ground that we can, we can stand on theologically. Um, so yeah, but let's get back to the dilemmas. Yeah, lots of great points. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus Outer Brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to His Son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. Let's move on to the second dilemma. So the expanding Godhead versus overlapping Godheads. So Aaron, would you like to kind of explain what that dilemma is in a nutshell? Yeah, if, <clears throat> if Jesus in the Mormon system moves on, you know, if he if he becomes a heavenly father, a spirit father of his own spirit kids. So him and his wife or wives, they beget spirit, their spirit babies, their spirit children, and they populate their own worlds and govern. He governs his own worlds and he's functioning as a heavenly father. You know, in Brigham's view, there's a cycle here where, you know, every cycle, there's a heavenly father, there's a son, there's a Satan. Well, so in this model, this repeatable model, Jesus is functioning as a heavenly father and he's sending his own firstborn son, whatever that's supposed to mean in that model. Um, some take it chronologically, some don't. So um, it stands to reason here that there's there's either uh, a new Godhead where he's the father and he's sending his son, um, or I'll, I'll, I'll shelf the or there, but just camp out for a second. If Jesus is a heavenly father for a second Godhead, that means that he either exited the other Godhead, uh, either he's, 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 he's graduating or exiting this Godhead, or he's um, a dual member of two godheads. So in this case, you have uh, an overlapping set of godheads. Um, well, that that raises more questions because a lot of Latter-day Saints will say that the unity of the three persons in our part- in the particular godhead over this planet, the unity is a unity of purpose. So uh, you really have to, if you've got two godheads or if you've got many godheads throughout the Mormon multiverse, uh, the, you know, if, if all the godheads essentially have the same purpose, then why aren't they one big Godhead? If there are a multiplicity of Godheads, then you've got multiple purposes, ultimately. Uh, You've got multiple purposes, one for each Godhead. And if you've got someone who belongs to multiple Godheads, he's got two purposes that overlap. Um, And so, you know, some Mormons will respond to me and say, well, there's there's no conflict of interest between deal membership of many Godheads. But I mean, I just want to take a step back and say, well, when Mormons say we believe in one God and they define that as a Godhead, um, you know, Christians will often say, well, actually you, elsewhere, you agree that you believe in the existence of multiple gods of the same type of being as God beings. Well, not, it's not only that it's Latter-day Saints, at least in this model here are not only affirming the multiplicity of divine beings in the, in the highest sense that they can offer they're they're in this in this model, positing the existence of many Godheads, countless Godheads. Now the other model is, and I've heard this before, is that when gods are exalted as, as gods, they join the existing godhead and that there is one giant godhead with an indefinite number of gods and that the godhead as it's represented to this generation of the gods is really just an, is like a subset or sample or like representative sample of the larger godhead. So the three, father, son, and spirit, um, really, you know, they belong to a godhead with a whole lot, uh, many more divine beings, and they all share the same purpose. 
And so I really, you know, really, if, if Mormons want to use, say, John 17 to argue that we're going to join the Godhead, you know, if we're going to form new Godheads, they've got to deal with these issues. It's just not a problem for Christians because we've got the Trinity and we've got a most high God. <clears throat> Any thoughts or comments on that, friends? Yeah, for sure. Um, as I was reading through this section of your article earlier today, it kind of struck me that, um, you know, one, I like what you've done here in, in, in laying out these dilemmas, uh, especially as it relates to um, the way Latter-day Saints will out, uh, often couch things in terms of, you know, that the, the oneness of the Godhead is, is in purpose, right? Um, but what struck me is that Latter-day Saints will often kind of lampoon the the Christian view of heaven as, oh, you just believe you're going to, you know, float around on harps and, or float around on clouds and play harps all day, uh, praising God, right. Uh, for all eternity. And what kind of, uh, what kind of eternity is that? What kind of heaven is that? Um, and the, the, you know, the, the implication is that you're just doing the same thing over and over again. So how is that enjoyable, right. From the Latter-day Saint perspective. Um, but what, what you've kind of pointed out here is that they run into kind of a similar dilemma if they if they run out their own thinking uh, to its logical conclusion, because if, you know, to get away from the dilemma of potential competing purposes uh, among multiple godheads, uh, then they would have to say that, you know, as, as Matthew quoted from uh, uh, Book of Abraham earlier, I believe, uh, uh, the this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the eternal life, the immortality and eternal life of man. If that's the sole purpose, right. For, um, for eternity, then, and, and for all, you know, gods on the Mormon view, then, then they are also doing the same thing over and over again. And, and, and when you get into the, uh, materialistic as, aspect of, of Mormonism, you know, uh, LDS feminists kind of recognize this, uh, a while ago when they, they kind of said they don't want to be barefoot and pregnant for all eternity, right? They, they recognize that there is a similar, uh, I don't know if you want to call it stagnation or what you want to call it within LDS thought, if you're going to avoid the dilemma of, of competing uh, purposes. So that's kind of my thoughts on, on this section of your article. It reminded me too of conversations I've had with Latter-day Saints, because you can point out sections in the Old Testament, you know, uh, the Messianic Psalms, and uh, I wish I'd uh, pulled them up. I don't know if it was, um, it's, it's the one uh, where, or no, it's actually in Isaiah, I think, Isaiah, maybe chapter 60. He says, uh, you know, Jesus gets up in the synagogues and, and he and quotes it, and then he says, today, this is fulfilled in your in, in your hearing. You know, he says, like, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, uh, that mess- Messianic Psalm. I love that one, or that Messianic passage. I love that because you see, you know, you see hints of the three members of the Trinity. You say, you see the, the the Messiah speaking from the first person, speaking of the spirit of the Lord is upon me, speaking of the spirit. And, you know, and, and you, you see God, you know, Yahweh is spoken there. So you see hints and shadows of, you know, the, the three members of the Trinity. And so I ask at Latter-day Saints, okay, we, we see, we can show where the father is called Yahweh or Jehovah. You can see where the son is called Yahweh or Jehovah. And, you know, in, in the Old Testament, a lot of times you'll see the spirit of Yahweh, you know, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And so if they're united in purpose, and, you know, they're each three gods in the Godhead, um, you know, and you hope to become a God, does that mean you hope to become or be called Yahweh or Jehovah? You know, because mm-hmm. some of them speak of Yahweh or Jehovah as more of a title or an exalted status. So are all these gods called Yahweh or Jehovah? And, you know, some would say yes, some some said no, um, some were hesitant to respond, you know, and some, but to me, like in LDS thought, traditionally, Jehovah was specifically speaking of Jesus, you know, that's, that's kind of what's been believed, at least uh, since the 20th century. I think that was kind of more codified in that time period. But, but when you have this expanding, either an expanding or multiple godheads, 
um, yeah, are, are they all Jehovah? Is it, you know, is it just, you know, this, this Godhead is Jehovah and the other ones have different names. Um, yeah, it it just makes me think right now is, is if I'm, if I'm supposed to worship the father for all of who he is, and if my heavenly father is also a son, a dual member of another Godhead in which he is the son, right? Ought not then I also worship the father for being a son. Like, does that make sense? Like, it, 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 am I supposed to kind of block out from my head ideas and facts and truths about God and only worship part of him? Does he have kind of a double life that I'm not supposed to know about? And I'm not supposed to, you know, so it, it really starts raising the question of, well, if, if Jesus becomes a heavenly father over a different set of worlds, am I not supposed to uh, esteem him and adore him for being a heavenly father? And, and so he might not be my heavenly father, but he is a heavenly father. And suddenly here I'm worshiping my heavenly father and then the son as a heavenly father. So it, 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 uh, yeah. It, yeah. And yeah, I, I totally hear that. And, and you're right. If, if there's, if there's not, um, you know, kind of, as you say in, in this section, uh, that there's only one purpose suitable for any Godhead. If there's not one purpose, then, then you do run the risk of, of running into the dilemma that you kind of pointed out in your first section, which is that, you know, what do you, what, what would you do if you were to find out that your heavenly grandfather was, was greater in dominion in power in attributes, uh, than, than the heavenly father, you know, and worship, uh, would you be then, you know, compelled or, 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 or wish to, uh, worship that other deity. Um, so that, that's a major problem. And, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm just always struck by the, the, um, the verse in the, in the, him amazing grace, you know, that talks about, uh, praising God forever. You know, when, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And that's, that's because of who God is, as you were kind of pointing out as we started out tonight, Aaron, and, and I don't think Latter-day Saints can kind of get to that, uh, that feeling of, 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 of joy, uh, that I, that I have in, in anticipating, uh, worshiping God forever and ever. All right, Fireflies, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with more from Aaron Shafawalaf. Until then, shine bright, Fireflies. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to Outer Brightness wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're benefiting from our content, please write a review to help us spread the word. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that notification bell. Music for Outer Brightness is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy, and Adams Road. You can learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. In the past, I believed in my own righteousness and hoped that I was worthy of the blood that Jesus shed. But now I know that all the works I did were meaningless
compared with Jesus' lonely death on the cross where He bore sin. And now I have the righteousness that is by faith in Jesus' name. I consider everything I lost compared to knowing Jesus. of the 